The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for. All stories, events, or tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy carrier with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 74 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 25th of March, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's show, we are honored to be joined by an inspiring aviator and gold seal CFI. She's an aircraft owner and president of the Arrow Valley Flying Club. She is the co-host of the hit YouTube channels Taking Off and In the Hangar, where together with her co-host and fellow pilot Dan Milliken, they have produced over 100 episodes over four seasons. She is a longtime resident of Lantana, Texas, where most of her neighbors know her as the president and co-founder of a local nonprofit, Lantana Cares, which is dedicated to resident-empowered beautification, education, and recreation. To help me kick off today's show is a superb aviator and co-host. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech and RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines, the name we use here on the show as an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his remote studios in Austin, Texas, where he has survived the DFW tornado warnings and severe weather. Please help us in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Hey, Tony. It's good to be back, man. It's been a while. I'm alive. You survived. I was getting oh, a little man. worried about it you. Was a, I, t- I got to tell you, uh, it was a little bit exciting last night uh, with the family and the tornado warnings. Uh, we were watching the weather closely, as most of us do in uh, Tornado Alley this time of year. And uh, we were watching TV and we heard the tornado sirens start to, to wail. And next thing you know, you hear, you know, both my kids and the dogs come like flying down the stairs like oh my god we gotta get into the shelter <laughs> yeah there was a lot of that too <laughs> we heard we heard a little bit of hail hitting the windows and uh yeah, it got exciting so we uh we went into the you know they recommend going into the lowest um, level of your house and getting into you know the, one of the most inner smallest rooms which happens to be a um, half bath downstairs so uh we all huddled in there and Really? I got a little, little iPhone with our TV on there. So I watched the news on there and, uh, yeah, we were in there for a good half hour, 45 minutes before, uh, you know, we, we, we figured it'd be, there was all, you know, the all clear. So, uh, yeah, that was all That's nine, 10 o'clock last crazy. night. Crazy. What a way to finish yeah. off coming back from vacation. Right. <laughs> you know, and Rob and I actually crossed paths in Honolulu last week that's right you know yeah, and it was, was so cool to he's like yeah i'm going on vacation i'm going to waikiki i'm like <laughs> i'll be in waikiki so yeah. uh yeah two podcasters and his family forget about yeah. it 
Yeah, that was awesome, man. I, I was, uh, we had to take that opportunity to get together like that and, and introduce you to my family. So, um, that was a great opportunity and we had, we were happy to, you know, see you and meet you. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And it was great to see Hawaii really kind of getting back up to speed. The beaches were packed. Oh, it was great. Not yeah. that I was on the beach. Let's just make that perfectly clear. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I was out exercising when I cross paths with Rob. Right. You were, you were. So, uh, yeah, you had your running shirt on, your running hat and your AirPods. You were ready to rock and roll. That's but right. I, on the other hand, I was ready to go to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, I'm glad you're safe and uh, had an, uh, a, a yeah. safe flight and journey uh, last night. And again, this morning, you were right back out this morning. That's right. Yeah. I had to um, fly another trip today. Uh, because of the Hawaii vacation, I had to rearrange my schedule and uh, what ends up happening is you load up the back half of your schedule just to make some time for that uh, vacation. So I have two trips back to back and I'm on the second half of that one. So yeah, it's going to be a long uh, four days. Yeah. Well, well, welcome. Well, also Thanks. here joining us today to help get Flight 74 of the Squawk Ident podcast underway is another exceptional aviator and co-host. He's an award-winning trophy-hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, and a captain and corporate operator as well. He joins us from his oasis of chaos, where he is again sharing his only day off this week from an enormous amount of flying from somewhere in San Diego, California. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Roger, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Tony, how about you? Can't complain, can't complain. I, I've been flying quite a bit. I was kind of feeling- Have you? Feeling kind of uh, tired and, and, and run down. And then I had some communications with you and texting about the show schedule and uh, I don't feel bad anymore. <laughs> You've been flying. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been, I feel like I'm a broken record. You know, the feast or famine thing, except it's, it's been a continuous feast of, of work lately. And I just can't seem to get away from it. But um, as I like to say, my job security looks really good. Oh, that's excellent. So, you know, that's, that's a whole lot better than a lot of other people can say. And so I, I choose to look at the positives most of the time. Yeah. Well, you know, the only downside is you haven't gotten much done on that uh, remodel, have you? <laughs> I have not gotten uh, much of anything done. I, I did uh, caulk some base some baseboards um, the other day, and that was about it. That's been the, the cumulative effort on my behalf for, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks now. Yeah. It's all kind of running together. I'm not really sure anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, we were going back and forth about uh, the different types of caulk and, and we were talking about how I finished my final bathroom remodel. The house is now officially complete on the inside and I used the wrong type of caulk and yeah, non-paintable, which anybody wow. that's had to deal with that, <laughs> I used what wow. the manufacturer of the uh, surround and the tub that I installed uh, recommended, the 100% silicone. And I thought, well, you know, it's going to be fine. You know, I'll do a nice, neat line. And then, no. Nah. <laughs> it doesn't hold paint, does it? Beads <laughs> up on it or whatever. Yeah, it beads <laughs> up. Um, so I was watching a lot of YouTube videos on how to paint over non-paintable cock. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Step one, remove cock. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there was a grinder involved, yes. <laughs> so, so it's good to see you guys. And, you know, I'm so excited about today's show. So now that we've got our pre-flight complete, let's get ready to push off the gate, start those virtual podcast engines and get Flight 74 of the Squawk Ident podcast officially underway. I'd also like to give a big thank you to Captain Kevin Elmore for joining me on episode 73 last week. We got to fly together after quite a bit of time since we've flown together last and his mentorship, his wonderful words about leadership, being a mentor, um, it's very inspiring. Um, Every time I get a chance to sit down and talk with Kevin, I am really impressed with his journey um, and how much he gives back to the aviation community and to his his peers as well. So thanks again to Kevin for joining us on episode 73. Well, we are very excited to have our next guest on the show. Her journey is both inspiring and filled with ongoing opportunity. From somewhere in Lantana, Texas, without further ado, please help us in welcoming to the Squawk Ident Podcast, Ms. Christy Wong. Christy, how are you doing? <laughs> doing good. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I, I came across your social media feed probably, I'd say about a year ago. And I thought, all right, here's another Instagram person that's a flight instructor that's out there with really cool, you know, photos of her with the airplane and with students. And what really caught my eye is all those pictures that you had put up with your students. There was a common theme that I noticed, which was you really enjoyed watching them grow. And that really spoke to me. So after a little while, I decided, well, I need to get her on the podcast. And it was through Kyle Jensen, who has been on the show a couple of times. And he said, you know, you really should reach out to her. I think she'd, she'd come on your show. And I did. And I was really so happy when you said, yeah, I'll, I'll come on the show. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. This is my very first podcast. All right. All right. Well, first one that I've agreed to. So. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. And we're so thrilled that uh, that lasts a long hey, time. Shut them up. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> they're, re- they're really excited to have you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that lasted forever. No, we are, we are very excited to have you here today. Um, and I, as I was doing my research on having you on the show, I, you know, I texted you yesterday. I said, wow, you know, just talk about a journey. And, and we, we have similar kind of journeys, whereas we started flying a little later. Uh, second career for me, uh, you know, I was 10 years into my first career and when decided, hey, uh, enough. It's been same. The sky's been calling. I've it's either yeah. now or never, you know. Um, but your journey started out at a very young age. Can you tell me a little bit about what sparked that initial desire to yeah, be Yeah, absolutely. Um, my grandfather 
when I was about four years old, he, he gave me a book. It was um, just a little pocket reference guide of airplanes. And I mean, this was in the mid to late 80s. So, uh, I mean, I, I loved that book. My favorite airplane was the DC-10 in that book. Um, you know, there were some uh, GA aircraft and stuff, but what really drew me to it was the airliners. And I mean, I, I wore that book out. and. I just always had this weird fascination with airplanes. I can't even describe it. And I didn't even grow up around airplanes necessarily. But when I saw one, I stopped and stared, you know, as most aviators do. Um, I mean, I didn't really grow up in areas where we had a lot of air traffic. Um, I was out in, you know, born and raised in Southern California, but it wasn't like in metro areas. I mean, I was born in the LA area, but we moved to the high desert. And so again, no airplanes. Um, then moved to Arizona, Western Arizona, no airplanes. And so when I did see an airplane, it was just this big deal. Um, finally moved to Las Vegas right after high school uh, to go to college there. And I found myself pretty much glued to the airport. They, there's a little sitting area at McCarran Airport. And I would actually go out there and just spend hours listening to air traffic control and watching the airplanes land while trying to study. Um, that was, uh, I, I just, I don't know how to describe it. Other than that, there was just a very early fascination with air, uh, aviation and airplanes in general. Yeah. And that's really cool that you would hang out on the observation deck area of the airport there to watch these airliners come in. How did you get any studying done? It was really hard. Usually it was in between like they, you know, obviously there's pushes. And so a lot of times it was in between the, the busy push times. I would actually, funny, I remember I'd go down to Taco Bell on the corner, grab Taco Bell, come back, sit, and then um, just sit there and try to study while listening to air traffic control and try to make sense of what they were saying because of course, I had no lessons, you know, in, in flying or anything. And so I just, I was trying to piece together everything while studying science and, and uh, you know, the things that I was focusing on in college. Yeah. So you were at UNLV, graduated in 2007, mm -hmm. and you got a job as a teacher at a very young age. That must have <laughs> been a pretty intimidating thing to do, especially at the grade level where you were teaching. Yeah, I needed a job. And so um, they were doing emergency certifications uh, to bring on teachers. And so you had to go through this whole interview process to get that certification, which I did. Um, and I, I started teaching um, science. And my first year of teaching was high school. And I was like 22, 23. Oh. And my students were like 18, 19. And um, it was, uh, it was pretty intimidating because the, you know, these were kids that were effectively my age. And so that lasted a year. And then after that, I decided to, uh, teach fifth grade and I did that for the next two years. Just, you know, really, I just needed a job. I, I, I never really like, I don't know how to say this. Like I never really grew up like, Oh, I want to be a teacher, but it was just one of those things where there was such a need for teachers. Um, and I saw a, a quick and easy career path, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, science, you know, I've always loved science and I've always been drawn to it. So when I moved to Texas, you know, I taught for one more year and then decided to go back to grad school. I see. And so awesome. 
you ended up going to the University of Texas, graduating. North Texas, UNT. UNT. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And you graduated in 2011. And is that where you got the education needed to become a clinical allergy specialist? What can you tell yes. me about that? Yeah. Um, so uh, I wound up getting a job. I, I actually was going to go to medical school. I decided um, I wanted to be a doctor. I just, I love science and uh, physics and medical biochemistry. And um, so I decided to put that all together and why not be a doctor? And as I got into medical school, realized very quickly that that was not what I wanted to do. I, I preferred the science aspect of it. Not that I didn't like working with patients, but there's also a lot of politics and corporation, you know, stuff, health care insurance and whatnot that um, they really don't teach you in med school, but you're kind of expected to know about and just decided I'd rather work in industry. And so that's what I did. I I got a job with my uh, prior company uh, as a, a clinical allergy specialist and kind of worked my way up through the ranks there. At the end of my allergy career, I was overseeing like 40 something clinics across two states. Wow. Yeah. And um, yeah, working with a lot of doctors, a lot of allergy technicians, a lot of patients. Um, It was, you know, I really enjoyed it for the time that I was there, but I knew that it wasn't going to kind of, it wasn't going to be my end all. And uh, actually it was in 2014 that I met my really good friend, Heather. Um, we met through a social media platform. She was actually (laughs) selling some stuff on, on Facebook. And I reached out to her and went over to her house and we started talking and found out she was a captain at an airline. And I went, Whoa, like aviation is relevant to my interests. Um, and uh, I know I've kind of jumped ahead because obviously I, I skipped the whole part about meeting Steve and um, you know, he was a, a corporate pilot at the time, but he had gotten laid off in 2011 and we had not been in aviation at all since. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when I met him, I, I originally, like I, I had already done some discovery flights and wanted to actually continue flight training, but he had lost his CFI. Uh, he had let it lapse and, um, we real he wasn't really on board with it at the time, and so I chose to go to grad school instead of flight school. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's kind, you of, kind that. of shifted. You were ready to mm-hmm. you know pull the trigger and, and get into aviation, but it all kind of shifted when you know. And I can understand, you know, you're. I've yeah. also let my CFIs lapse, and and it's kind of intimidating. Me too. Yeah, and Rob's in the same boat. It's kind of intimidating to kind of go, okay, I have to go and redo everything. And you really don't know. It's dependent upon whatever instructor you end up teaming up with. If your CFI lapses and, you know, you, you have it, but it's expired. What do you have to do? Is it going to be a couple of flights and a check ride? Do you have to do, you know, so many hours? It's really dependent upon the program that you find. So I can understand where that hesitation, I think some of our listeners might think, well, why didn't he just you know, go and do it, you know, why, why, but it kind of led you to a path where you really have a a wonderful opportunity as a a fallback, which we'll later learn is very important. Um, But it kind of, so your, your, your direction went away from aviation into the clinical allergy specialist field. And then you met your friend, Heather. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So 
um, Heather was a captain at an airline and I thought, wow, this is relevant to my interests. You know, I've, I've always loved aviation, always been interested in it. Even after Steve left aviation, I was always on YouTube watching videos. I mean, when my son was very young, um, we would do educational videos and I'd always throw in a, an airplane video or two. I think they were mostly for me, not for him, but, um, (laughs) yeah, you know, I mean, I had this one video where they had spirit airplanes coming in and I was like, Mitchell, what color is the airplane? And he'd say yellow. And I'd say, you know, like (laughs) Uh definitely educational. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, so for the next two years after I met her in 2014, I, I mean, she was so great. She spent so much time with me just pestering her and asking her questions. And I mean, I would just spend hours with her about and just spending time with her. I mean, this, this girl was my age and she was a captain and she had this, you know, journey through aviation, basically the pathway that I had wanted to go, but I chose a different path. And, um, you know, she kept telling me, you just need to do it. You just need to go to a flight school. Just go learn how to fly. Just go get your private and see if you like it. And, um, but I wasn't sure how Steve would feel because he had been out of aviation for so long and I didn't, and it's not like he like left aviation and chose to leave. He'd gotten laid off. And in 2011, there really weren't any aviation jobs. And so, yeah, that was a rough year. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. And so it was kind of like, well, um, I, I just didn't want him to get resentful or anything. I actually took his feelings very much into consideration. But after two years of pining, longing and pestering Heather, an opportunity arose Um, in October of 2016. He asked me what I wanted for Christmas. And I said, well, actually, I think I want to learn how to fly. And to my delight, he was he was on board with it. He was like, "Okay, cool. Let's see how we can get this done. And uh, we started talking a little bit. And so um, he even told me he was like, cool, you can go fly for the airlines. I'll stay home with the kids. And I was like, score, you know, like um, we started looking at flight schools. We looked at um, some of the surrounding, you know, flying clubs and we found the Arrow Valley Flying Club. And Steve basically agreed to uh, reinstate his CFI uh, certification. Uh, and by doing that, you actually have to go retake a CFI checkride. Doing a CFI checkride will reinstate all of your old um, instructor certificates. So he had to do that and then join the fly. You know, he did that by joining the flying club and then just going out and practicing from the right seat and redoing all the maneuvers and everything. And then, um, as soon as he did that, he did that like on the 23rd of February and my, and then he took the next day off, rightfully so. And then on February 25th of 2017, I logged my first actual flight training hour. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Talk about we, a memory as well to, to be sitting there. Now that's gotta be tough too, when you have a loved one that's instructing you. And so the gloves are off, I think in that oh. scenario was it difficult to to get along in the cockpit and then have to go home and and <laughs> hear about actually it? you know what not at all in fact there was a really only a couple of times early on in that training where um you know there was one time there was a couple of times where i was really nervous i was very very timid 
especially when it came to turbulence, traffic, and towers. I call them three T's, you know? Mm. They and um and then of course, like the maneuvers. I didn't want to stall the airplane. I was terrified. I mean, I was learning in a 172, and everybody knows, you know, you stall the airplane, especially on a power on stall, that wing drops, you know, and and that was very um, I'd never experienced that before. And so um, there was one time where I was so scared and he got really frustrated with me. He's like, the airplane's not going to fall out of the sky. And I was like, why are you yelling at me? And, <laughs> but, but afterward we, we kind of, we, we basically said, okay, stop, you know, in the cockpit, we are, um, instructor and student and we are not husband and wife. And, and then we would debrief afterward. And so, um, I think honestly, and I told him this several times, he was actually harder on me than he was with anybody else for a few reasons, but he wanted to make sure that when he put his name on, on my, in my logbook, it meant something. Nobody could look back and say, Oh, Steve, you know, he was easy on you or Mm. like, I was not going to go into a check ride, you know, and fail. Like I was going to be ready to go. Ready to roll. Nice. Exactly. He was, he was very hard on me. And the fact that you, you recognize that and can appreciate that it it speaks volumes to your character as well. I've got to say, um, because that those instructors that are a little harder on you and you think, God, you know, just lighten up, you know, but (laughs) there's a reason for it. And the fact that he was hard on you is actually very telling as well. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, he definitely didn't let anything slide with me. And, um, by the time we, so we actually got to my instrument training, I started partnering with other instructors as well, because around this time, even though Steve had said, I don't want to live out of a suitcase anymore. I don't want to be a professional pilot. Um, our presence on the local social media pages started to grow because I was just so excited about, um, being part of aviation. Like I wasn't, I was no longer an observer. I was, you know, part of it. I had also gotten involved with the Arrow Valley flying club. Um, shortly after joining, I asked the president if I could help in any way or get involved. And he was like, well, we've never had a social director. And I said, cool. And within three months of starting that role, we doubled the membership of the flying club. And so we needed amazing. uh, we needed more airplanes. We only had two airplanes in the club at the time. We needed four now. And so Steve and I started looking around for an airplane. And true story, I actually wanted a high wing because uh, that's all I knew, you know, up to that point. Um, and I was only, I was right about four and a half, almost five months into my, my training when we found the warrior, Steve wanted a low wing. I wanted a high wing. We actually compromised and said, okay, we'll get a Cardinal because it's a high wing that flies like a low wing. But then we found the warrior and it was beautiful. And I thought, okay, well, this is intimidating. I don't know how to fly that airplane. I only know how to fly a 172, but it, it's a love story how we got to that airplane and, and how um, we wound up buying it. And so it was meant to be. We flew her home. And, uh, I did my private pilot check grade like two weeks later. So it took me five and a half months of training. And this is all also while working full time and having a family. So, uh, but I, I was so committed. Like I was determined. Is that it right there? That's it. There she is. There it is. (laughs) That's my girl. Very nice. Yeah. If you, I mean, do you want to hear the story about the airplane? Of course. Sure. Okay. So I didn't want the airplane at first, you know, but 
we were, well, Steve was trying to convince me to buy an archer because it was a 180 horsepower low wing. And he kept telling me, once you go low wing, you'll never go back. And I was like, whatever, just give me my high wing and let me fly. Um, well then (laughs) he kept sending me articles on low wings. And then we came across the warrior on, it wasn't barnstormers. It was one of the other, you know, uh, websites, you know, airplane selling websites. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is a really pretty airplane. It's my two favorite colors, you know, blue and another shade of blue. Um, it, you know, had a pretty basic panel, but it was good looking, you know, standard six pack, dual VOR, DME and an ADF. I was like, heck yeah, you know? Um, and then, uh, we, uh, so we, Steve reached out to the seller and the seller actually told him, well, um, the airplane's about to come off the market because I've just promised it to another buyer. And I was actually kind of heartbroken. Cause I was like, wow, that was a really pretty airplane. You know, even though I didn't want a low wing, like something just drew me to it. Um, well about two weeks later, Steve calls me when I was at work and he was like, Hey, do you still want that airplane? And I was like, wait, the warrior? Yeah, the warrior. It's like, dude, don't play with my emotions. <laughs> it turns out that the what had happened was the buyer that was going to buy it could not secure financing. He was a student pilot and he was trying to get the financing. His finance company would not finance the airplane because they were missing logbook number one. Oh. Well, our finance company said, we're cool with that as long as the logbook number two goes back at least 25 years. Logbook number two started in 1992, which was exactly like almost to the month, 25 years. Oh, wow. So we were like, okay, that's great. So we, we got everything set up in escrow, got the financing. The night before, Steve and I are airlining up to Seattle to go uh, test fly the airplane and then subsequently fly our home. The seller calls us and says, guys, you're not going to believe this. He hit, was in the hangar digging out all the stuff to give us for the airplane and found logbook number one, which had <laughs> fallen down behind uh, his uh, filing cabinet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got the full logs on the airplane. Nice. Yeah. So we it's went. meant to be. Exactly. We went, test flew her, loved her. And then over the course of two days, we flew her across the north you know, to Rapid City and then down south the next day uh, down to DFW where, where she lives today. So very, that, very cool. Yeah. It's almost and like then, they have a, a life of their own. I'm telling you, it's crazy. So that airplane was definitely meant to be. And then just kind of a, you know, on a joke, one of our local air traffic controllers at Denton called it the long warrior and (laughs) the name stuck. And so ever since then, I mean, she's been affectionately known as the long warrior. And she's she's famous as well. Um, Do y'all use that as, as a call sign when you guys check in with Denton? Uh, sometimes long warrior sometimes. whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, whenever we do a flight of two, it's always long warrior flight of two, you know, right on. Oh, yeah. so have you converted to low wing or you still, you know, have the affinity for the high wing. So I do have an affinity for the one seventy twos. I have a lot of love there. Honestly, though, guys, I'm kind of an all wing person, like give me an airplane <laughs> and just let me fly. But yeah. Um, I think the reason why my airplane became so well known is because I took this basic airplane. I mean, it's a warrior, right? Yeah. But I fell in, I just 
hardcore fell in love with her and just with aviation in general. And I, I literally anthropomorphized this airplane and because, and just put her out there. And because of that, people were like, you know, started noticing, noticing Mm -hmm. the airplane everywhere and her popularity spread. So I wound up doing all. um, So I started my instrument training and that's where I branched out using other instructors because Steve started, um, because of our social media presence, he started getting offers to fly corporate airplanes again. So he started getting back into that. And I started having to use other um, individuals. And um, I actually wound up meeting um, one of my best friends in the whole world through that process. Uh, Kevin, he joined our flying club. And then I was like, hey, I need some commercial training or I need whatever. And, And so he would start helping me with that. And then um, one of my best friends, Marcus, he wasn't a flight instructor, but he was like, I'm always down to go fly. Like if you need a safety pilot or whatever. So mm-hmm. I've met some really, really great friends, you know, through this process. In fact, all of my really close friends now um, are all in aviation, you know, that I met through this process, except Heather, of so course. Cool. She, Heather's the OG, you know, there you so go. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah her and I are so close today. So it, it's amazing. And we've said this now for years here on the show is the aviation community is one of the smallest communities on the planet. And what I mean by that is you never know. Who oh my gosh. You're going to be flying with next or who's going to be your chief pilot next or, you know, yeah, it's a very tight knit community and we all have that passion, which is a little different than I think other professions. Um, I think yeah. other professions, you know, you have a career, you have a job, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have an income. Uh, unfortunately, some people, that's all they can say. Oh yeah, I've got an income. We have a passion. And with that passion, yeah. when you, when you see someone else, the only other time I ever saw anything like this is, uh, back in college, I used to uh, ride a motorcycle quite a bit. Uh, and it didn't matter who you were, didn't know each other. You always waved, you know, gave, gave, yeah. the, gave the heads up to the other rider. Oh, you ride a motorcycle? I ride a motorcycle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's the only other time I've ever seen that kind of just unsolicited hey what's up um but in aviation it's 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 something else and the fact that you found that in a very short period of time and you acknowledge it and are are really welcoming it into your life and your lifestyle uh says a lot uh you, you did all your ratings in just under two years um yeah well almost just over two years just over two well so not including my ATP, I actually, I was getting really, so I did like, it was like every five months I was getting a new rating basically, or a new certificate. So it took me five and a half months for my private, another five and a half months for my instrument. Um, it took me a little bit longer. It took me about six months for my commercial single. And that was because the warrior also went down for, um, an annual uh, the first annual and I do owner assisted annuals, or at least I try to. So I was very, very involved in that. And because of that, I took a back, you know, um, I, I took my training back for a second, but then as soon as she came back up, I mean, I really hit it hard. And then it took another two months for my multi-engine commercial add-on. And then a three months after that, I had my CFI. And then six months after that, I had my double I. 
And that's the reason why it took me so long between my double I and my CFI is because I actually, uh, in December of 2018, I did the scary, one of the scariest things I've ever done. And I quit my allergy job to go into aviation full time. And that was truly the scared, most scared, I think, you know, at that point in time in my life, I mean, I took the MCAT, you know, I, I did, you know, the commercial maneuvers. I did all the scary things, you know, but this was truly scary because I was leaving my comfort zone, my, my good stable job with the good paying salary and everything mm-hmm. I knew and had worked up for, for a decade, basically at this point. Yeah, I get and, it. Uh, I totally get it. <laughs> I was getting ready to do my CFI check ride. And it was like, I talked to Steve and we, I was like, all right, if I do this, you know, you've got my back. Right. And he was like, yeah, like, I mean, we, we both agreed that it was a good move. And so I quit my job and I got a job as a contract pilot, uh, just flying contract. And then I was like, all right, I get my CFI and now I've got options to, to flight instruct. And that's basically what I did for the next nine months is I contract flew and very sporadically, I didn't flight instruct a lot. So um, not at first. And then um, that summer, when I was approaching about 900 hours, I think I had accrued at this time. That's when I started looking around. And I was like, I, you know, I need to make a decision. Am I going to go corporate? Or am I going to follow the airline path? And I kind of worked backwards. I said, well, what is my end goal? My end goal is the, the, you know, legacy airlines. And I said, what is the easiest path that, you know, or not the easiest, but what is the most logical pathway? The most yeah. efficient. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had two interviews within a week of each other. I had the interview. I had an interview at a 135 carrier corporate. And then I had an interview at a 121 carrier through their cadet program. And I got, uh, and I mean, I had to make a really hard decision. And ultimately, I decided to do the 121 carrier because it allowed, I mean, it was getting my foot in the door to the airlines to get to the legacies in the future. Yeah. And um, I thought, you know what, Th- this is the way to go. So I joined that carrier. And at that point, I was literally thrown, thrown into flight instructing. Um, I went from ah, flight instruct maybe 10 hours a month give or take to mm-hmm. flight instructing about a hundred hours a month. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Because I, I had to go to a flight school. I went to a 141 flight school um, as part of the cadet program. And then, right. I mean, it was just, so from that point on, it was just nonstop flying for the yeah. next six months. And I was coming up, it was, it was February of 2020. And I was coming up on my 1500 hours. And I already had a class date um, for my for the 121 carrier I was going to. And I thought, you know what? If I time this just right, I might be able to hit 1500 on the three-year anniversary. And so I actually had to throttle back a little bit for those last couple of weeks. Um, oh. But I was actually able to make it work. I got it to where I was two hours away. I had 1,498 hours. <laughs> And I literally, he, Steve was not happy. I drug him out to the airport. So I was like, I really want you with me. This is like a huge deal. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't happy about it, but he reluctantly came along and we flew for two hours and I hit my 1500th hour on my way back into Denton. 
and um, told the controllers what I was doing. So they actually like, you know, pegged it like exactly where I was on my 1500th hour and like sent me pictures and stuff later. And so, (laughs) yeah. You know, the fact that you were able to kind of think of that and a lot of us go, oh yeah, you know, and you're counting every, every point one, you know, you're like, oh, do I, do I, do I, do I? and the fact that you were able to coordinate that is pretty impressive. You know, you've, you've really yeah. become a kind of a breath of fresh air in, in your local community, in your aviation community. Yeah. You've got a social media presence there. You've been featured in the local paper more than one time. Um, and during this entire process, when you were doing your flight training, you ended up meeting Dan Milliken. What can you tell yeah. me about that encounter? <laughs> so I joke, I joke that I accidentally became a YouTube celebrity. <laughs> it's not <laughs> something that I ever wanted or planned for, or, you know, thought of in my, you know, career. So as I was getting ready for my commercial checker, you guys know, my social media presence started growing. Dan had just started the taking off channel a couple months prior he reached out to me and said, Hey, I would like to do an episode of taking off with you in the long warrior. And I thought, okay. I mean, I was, but I was so hyper-focused, you know, I, I, I joke that, you know, some women turn into bridezilla. Well, I don't, <laughs> but I do turn into check ridezilla. Uh, as I come up to a check ride, I start getting hyper-focused. And so I was a nervous wreck and everything, but he really wanted to do this episode. It was a hot summer day. It was like in June. And, um, we went up and we just flew around. It was a lot of fun, but, um, I definitely wasn't as loose as I normally am in, in terms of like, you know, like I was very focused on that check ride. Well, Dan said, Hey, I tell you what, if you pass your commercial check ride, I will give you your first paying commercial job. I will hire you to do some aerial photography with me. And I thought, Oh, that's nice. Well, three weeks later, I did pass my check ride. So he reached back out to me and he was like, Hey, let's go fly. Let's do some aerial photography. And he, and we did, and he actually paid me for it. So Dan Milliken gave me my first paying commercial job. And then right on. like, it was like a week or two after that, he, he reached out to me again. He was like, look, I'm thinking about doing a web show called in the hangar. And, um, I would like you to be my co-host. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, what are we going to do? You know, film this in your mom's basement. You know, I, I didn't really. <laughs> think and so I decided I talked to Steve about it and then decided, you know what, I am, I'm going to go ahead and check this out. And I showed up to the studio and I was like, Oh my God, this is like a legit thing. So what pe- what a lot of people don't realize is that Dan actually owns a production company and oh. you know, production and film, that's his primary career. And the thing about us, the reason why we work so well together is he's film and production first and aviation second, whereas I am aviation first and then film and production second. So there's a good balance there. Balance. Yeah. And he really liked my personality. And I, again, I just, aviation, like all of this stuff has kind of become a passion project for me because I just love it so much. I'm so happy to finally be here after longing for it my whole life, you know? And I think that was really shining through my social media. Um, And so we started uh, filming and man, that first season, the first two seasons, I think were rough because we were still learning as we went, you know, what is the dynamic of this show going to be? And then about the third and fourth season, we really got a hold on it. And we just finished 
filming season five. Those episodes are now coming out every Friday on our YouTube channel. And uh, like, it's, it's interesting, you know, Dan and I had a talk about a year ago and I said, what, what can I do? Like, what can we do? And he said, honestly, just, uh, just stay with the show. You know, that's, that's really what the show needs is it needs your balance. You know, um, we, he, he could do the show by himself, but it wouldn't be the same without that balance, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love doing the show and I'm going to keep doing it as long as we're doing it for, uh, I've been given this really unique platform to, to which I can help people and I can, you know, send a positive message. So I, I say like, I've, I use my powers for good, not evil. Yeah. Like I, I use that platform to help people. I'm an EAA Young Eagles pilot. Um, I specialize in doing discovery flights for people of all ages. I, I say I, you know, I do old eagles as well as young eagles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, I mentor and encourage others. Um, I get sent fan mail and names and questions all the time. And I always try to Man. take at least an hour or two each week to try to answer people. Um, I get a lot of stuff that gets sent to my junk folder. I apologize if I don't always get to those, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I really do try to keep a positive presence in aviation and just cause there's a lot of negativity out there. And I mean, I've seen it, I'm not immune to it, but I also try not to participate in it. Yeah. And listening to her rattle off all those things, I, I sit here and I think about think to myself and I'm looking at my calendar for the day and I'm like, I ain't got nothing going on. <laughs> how, come, how come Tony always brings on people to make us look bad, Rob? I know. He's always bringing on people to make us look bad. Well, I took I like- the MCAT and I was a teacher and I was a clinical allergy. And then in my spare time, I started flying and I founded a nonprofit yeah. organization. Yeah. And now I'm an airline pilot. And what do you guys do? I- I just watched Beavis and Butthead the other uh, about an hour. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no you didn't. Your IQ just dropped, my friend. Oh. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> well, so it's interesting. You brought up my nonprofit. I did. Yes. I so I, uh, in my community, Lantana, Texas, um, in 2016, a fellow neighbor and I we co-founded Lantana Cares. It's really interesting. Lantana is actually not a city. There's no mayor or anything like that. It's right. unincorporated Denton County. And so there's little pieces that get broken off and taken care of. Like the HOA takes care of this subset of things. The freshwater supply districts take care of this. Um, the electric company of all places, they take care of this. And then the county is supposed to take care of this. But there's all this like little, you know, things that get lost in the shuffle. And so we decided to take matters into our own hands and it started as a small trash cleanup. And then we saw kind of a bigger, um, we saw a bigger purpose there. And so within about three months, we actually, um, we used our own money to fund paying for the lawyer to get the 501c3 going so that we could ask for grant money. Um, and then we started getting grants and then within a year we started, um, getting more money. And then um, we got a board of directors put together and I I serve as the president and we actually got, uh, we took over the Lantana Educational Foundation within the last couple of years. And that was a big five, that was a big um, foundation that the builder of the community originally they started, but now the builder is moving out of the community because they're almost done building out. 
And mm-hmm. so they wanted to just either scrub it, get rid of it, dissolve it or whatever. And we said, no, 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 this, this money actually does a lot of good for the community. We'll take it. And so we spent a year taking, I mean, it was a lot of legal and accounting and, and everything, but we took that over. So now we, we oversee that. Um, and we still do, we do beautification projects all over the community. We, we do a lot. Um, yeah. I've been to Lantana. That, that's a beautiful community up there. I mean, I've yeah. looked at buying a house up there a couple of times and whatever reasons we never really purchased up there, but man, that's a beautiful area. Yeah. yeah really all of the, there's a lot of, yeah, um, certainly now I know yeah. <laughs> why it's so beautiful. <laughs> well, it was, it was beautiful before I got to it, but yeah. um, like, for example, we, um, so like the HOA built the brand new North community center and then Lantana care sponsored all of the outdoor beautification of it so Mm -hmm. it would have just been basically a building but now it's it's a lot more than that yeah very nice how did you how did you uh, meet bill featherstone your uh, the co-founder here was he just your neighbor and you you guys decided let's start a nonprofit. i mean how does one do that (laughs) yeah sort of we met at a community event and he was like you know and i was actually (laughs) so i had gotten part I'd, I'd become part of the crime watch. I, I was actually a volunteer. Um, uh, uh, it was uh, the volunteer sheriff's office, the um, VIPS program, volunteers and police service. I had done that in like 2015, 2016, because people were hating on the police and I was trying to get the police and the community to like be, you know, um, more amicable with each other. So I was trying to yeah. do a lot of community events and basically I was trying to be a gateway. Like I was trying to network between the two. And so we met through a community event. We started talking and then he started talking about the trash cleanup thing. And I was like, sure, why not? Uh, and it just kind of went from there. Wow. I mean, that must be, I mean, you mentioned how much work it was to get the whole thing off and running, but now that it's an established organization, I see their Facebook page that Lantana cares, uh, really highlights all the good that you've done for the community. But does that take a lot of time out of your schedule, especially your flying schedule? Um, it used to in the beginning it did, but, and that was just really the setup and getting it going and stuff. Um, I mean, I was out there like every other weekend doing stuff, but it started really, um, you know, it, it started go on autopilot, pun intended. Um, and then when, as I got more people involved, they started helping. So it was no longer just Bill and me doing everything. We actually had a board that was helping out. And so now I really just help oversee everything um, and make sure that it's running smoothly. Make sure, you know, uh, I attend the monthly board calls and things like that, but it... Fortunately, um, I was able to still attend um, a vast majority of the meetings. I think I missed a couple here and there, but. Yeah. And we here on the show very much support the Thin Blue Line. So I want to thank you for all the work you've done and to support our law enforcement community. It's uh, it's quite a job, especially in, in these times where especially the media, the 5M would love to sensationalized all the wrongdoings but there's yeah that's such a a, just a little thin gray hair amongst all the good that that happens every single day so thank you for that yeah absolutely and we'll be right back right after the break 
And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, you know, we've been sitting down here finding out about the journey of Christy Wong and how she went from, you know, educator to in medicine to a good, stable job. And she threw it all away for her passion to fly airplanes for a living. But we didn't quite get into the most, I at least for me, the most exciting part of her journey, which is some of the more recent parts. She mentioned the cadet program, which we've had uh, the Legacy Airlines and our sister company, American Airlines Cadet Program recruiters on the show before. So if you haven't checked that out, go back and check out the episodes where we have American Airlines Cadet Program recruiters that give a really good information about the program itself. We had a couple cadets on the show as well that day. Um, so kudos to them. But here at Legacy Airlines, we have a similar program. And Chrissy went through it and she got a job at an airline that we affectionately call Sandpiper. Now, that must have been exciting to, to have all this time, the struggle, the passion, the conviction to get this career moving and you get the call and they say, yep. come on in for an interview. Bring us back to that day. What was that interview like? Oh man. So I, I actually did the application and they called me the next day <laughs> and they said, <laughs> we would like to interview you. Cause remember this was in 2019, you know, pilot shortage, pilot shortage. And here sure. I was like a 900 hour pilot. And, um, they were like, absolutely come in for an interview. So I got set up for the, an interview, like right away, like the very next week. And, um, I was so excited. I went in, uh, and it's like a group interview. And then they, they, it's an all day event almost. And they pull people aside to do individual interviews. They do an HR portion and then they do a technical portion. They put you back together, you have lunch, and then they start pulling people aside again to um, either offer you a job or, or whatever. And they offered me a job same day. And uh, so I not only got the job offer you know, for the airline, but then um, as well as the cadet program. So I had to go upstairs and meet with the cadet um, people and then get onboarded there. I had already reached out to the flight school I wanted to work at, knowing that they participated in the cadet program. And so I went in uh, for an interview with them, got the job offer the same day, and uh, just kind of put the paperwork all together. It took a couple of weeks, actually. Um, I did all the interviews and stuff in August, but because of paperwork, fingerprinting, you know, um, right. uh, Bria, all of that, I actually didn't like technically start, um, until like the second week of September. And then it was, uh, hit the ground running. And like <laughs> I said, for the next six months, I, I just flight instructed. And then on after flight instructing, I'd go jump in the long warrior and go, just go fly. Build that Sometimes, time. <laughs> mm -hmm, I would grab a friend cause it's always better flying with friends. And I mean, we'd go to Oklahoma city, we'd go to mineral wells, we'd go to grant, you know, just, go build time and experience, you know? So, uh, that was my life, my crazy, crazy life for about six months. Um, yeah. I still managed to squeeze in filming, um, two more seasons of in the hangar. 
And then, um, like I said, hit my 1500 hours on the three year anniversary of me, my first flight hour logged, and then went right into the ATP CTP course immediately. Like, I think I had the weekend off. We had a club event that weekend, um, <laughs> that I, I hosted. And then that Monday, that's when I started in doc. And that was on March 9th of 2020. All right. Wow. 20, we all know what happens after that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we are a class of 24 pilots. We're super excited and eager to be there. And uh, we got through Indoc. I was in the first half of the training group. They had to split us up. There were so many of us. They split us. What they do is they split you into two groups. The first group starts systems um, that week. And then the second group is sent home and then brought back the following week. So they're just a week offset. Mm -hmm. They sit. So I started systems and three days later, they shut everything down. Um, what, yeah. And by yeah. that, what I mean is that all future classes were told not to come in. Yeah. Now my class, because we had already started systems, they kept us uh -huh. and they got us all the way through training. So I That's got my great. type rating in the jet, my ATP, um, you know, I finished training, but unfortunately, just because of the circumstances, um, we never got to finish IOE. Uh. So we sat on the ground and just waited for, we, we really didn't know what was going on. And it wasn't just my class. It was like two or three classes ahead of mine were in the same position, finished training and then never got to finish IOE. Yeah. And, uh, and then, um, unfortunately on October 1st, we were, we were furloughed. So right. ah. now, did you ever, did you ever even start IOE? Mm -mm. So you've actually never even got to fly the actual aircraft. No, yeah. not technically. I did a lot of, but I, you know me, I'm well, you don't know me, you know me now. I am very on top <laughs> of my game and I did not want to lose that proficiency. So like every other week I was in the jump seat doing observation flights, you know, um, no, going somewhere, whether it was a clean turn or, you know, going up to, you know, Lexington or whatever. I was, I was in the cockpit. I was, yeah. you know, trying to keep my flows and, and everything else sharp so that, I mean, I was like ready to go, like, come on, coach, put me in. I'm, I'm ready. But then uh, the consolidation yeah. <laughs> period came and went, and sure. then we knew we were going to have to go back to the Sims. But then when we got furloughed, they basically, we were told, well, you're going to have to go back through long-term anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, and there's a very important yeah. point that you're making here that I really wish more pilots at the beginning or the start of their careers would pay attention to. You mentioned you were proactive. You were using your jump seat privileges while you had them in order to sit in the jump seat and observe. And we all know that the jump seat is the, is the wide angle vision of what's going on on the flight deck. The fact that you took the time to stay in the game, to sit in the jump seat, to watch the flows, to watch the flight operation, to get it comfortable with the SOPs or the standard operating procedures, the call outs, the flows, the trigger events. Um, that's crucial. That's monumental. When I was an instructor, yeah. I used to have every single one of my students, regardless of where they were in their training, they had to at least observe two flights with other students that I had. When I became a, a Czech airman, the company at the time over at Sandpiper 
at the, when I got hired, they had a rule where you had to observe two flights from the flight deck prior to IOE. And usually what they did is your IOE check airman, captain, uh, had a, a first officer for their trip for the week. You would go and observe the first two legs, considering we're a hub and spoke system at the time. Uh, it was easy. It was an out and back. And then that scheduled FO would go home with pay. And they were just real happy. They're like, oh, yeah, thanks. You can sit in my seat now. I get to go home and get paid. Uh, good luck. <laughs> and yeah. then you would get in that seat. And that would be <laughs> your first time at the controls of a jet. You were type rated. You were FAA licensed. It was fine. But it was your first time in the jet. And you had 50 passengers or more in the back. So it was relatively intimidating. And basically, you're hanging on by the wing or the rudder for probably the first you know, two legs. Static until, wicks. Yeah. Until you get you're kind in the of back lab. You're pulling you're pulling yourself up to the flight deck and by the third leg you're actually can keep up. And that's normal. That's part of the process. I yeah. ended up being a commuter right off the bat. So commuting to and from work, I couldn't sit from my location in Los Angeles to Chicago on the jump seat of an Embraer 145. It's simply wasn't going to happen. So I ended up commuting either on a 7.3 or an Airbus, uh, sometimes on a 7.5 on another carrier. And whenever the opportunity arose and they said, well, you can sit in the cockpit or you can sit in the back, which one do you want? I was always cockpit, please. Yeah. Because not only was I watching how the professionals at the at the main line do it right or the major um but i was i was kind of getting into that rhythm because it doesn't matter if you're flying a saab or a q400 or a 777 or a 787 the procedures might be or the nuances might be a little different in the procedures but the gist of it the foundation the meat and potatoes of it all is the same the professionalism the call outs yeah. they're all the same so I really felt that gave me a leg up. The fact that you had the tenacity to say, I'm not just going to go home and gloat about potentially being furloughed here with what's going on in the world with this pandemic. I'm going to actually keep in the game because I want to be there ready to go the minute the whistle blows. So, you know, my hat's off to you for that. That shows a tremendous amount of maturity to want to do that. So, yeah, good job. You know, and so we got furloughed, but then we were paper recalled, I guess you can say, um, in December when the PSP, uh, you know, the payroll support Mm -hmm. got reinstated for us, or I guess extended, they brought us back, but we did not, we weren't given back all of our credentials. So unfortunately I am not able to jump seat until I actually get put back into training. And, um, but I, they told us that even though we were getting recalled, sort of, we're not really recalls. We're kind of in pilot purgatory. Uh They said, if you got another job, you can keep your job. Well, what I've been doing since I got furloughed is I've been flight instructing and I've been corporate flying again, just contract flying whenever I can. Um, I'm SIC type rated in the Citation 500 series and also in the Lear 45. And so every now and then I get a trip that I'm able to go on and um, I know how to fly those jets really well. So I, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I, I know that compared to my brother and sister pilots, I am very fortunate. Not only that, I'm an aircraft owner and I'm part of a flying club. So as part of my 
use my powers for good uh, motif, I've extended myself um, to say any other furloughed pilots that are in the DFW area, if you want to go fly, send me a message. I've now taken four furloughed pilots up for flights that haven't seen or touched an airplane since we got furloughed. Um, I had one guy recently, I mean, and every single one of them, they're so giddy. I, I just absolutely love it. They're like, oh my God, it's a real airplane. And um, I mean, we took off this last time and he was like, we were flying. You know, he was just so happy <laughs> to be back in the air as a pilot. I mean, these, yeah. these guys haven't flown in September, but they don't have access to airplanes like I do. So yeah. um, the guy before that was like, terrified because he's like i have a feeling they're going to start recalling us soon and i haven't touched an airplane in six months i don't even know if i know how to fly anymore <laughs> and so we went out and flew and then i had him do the ils going back into the airport so i was like hey we'll just practice hand flying you know this course and you know just stuff like that um just trying to keep my my brother and sister pilots flying reminding them of that passion. Like, why did we get into this? I couldn't imagine. I, I think I would die a little bit if, if I couldn't fly, you know, I go, I go yeah. a week because of snowmageddon and I'm literally like, you know, <laughs> sitting in my, on my sad little couch going clear prop because I can't, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where yeah. I don't see your Cape. Where's your, where's your Cape? <laughs> Because I know, you are I don't know how she does it. No, like amazing. the incredible. No, oh no cape, God. no capes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I so, have wings, yeah. no capes. There you go, wings. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, there's uh, you've mentioned how much you have a passion to really pay it forward and your flight instructing. I mean, the fact that you were a high school teacher and an elementary school teacher and in medicine and you have a scientific mind, I mean, it all kind of makes sense. When you start to really put the puzzle pieces together, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. Some of the awesome. challenges coming up with being a flight instructor, I can remember those days, <laughs> not that long yeah. ago, um, are plentiful. What do you think are the most common issues that you're seeing in this current market with student pilots? So fortunately, my education background, because uh, one of my degrees is in education, um, that really helped me with the FOIs and just being able to, you know, find different learning styles. So or, um, it's not the learning and the teaching styles that I find the most difficult. Um, when I was at the flight school, uh, I taught with the Chinese program. So this was their full-time job. Uh, I want you there at 6 a.m., and they were there at 545. You know, I, I want this student at this time, this student at this time, this student at this time. The biggest challenge that I have now is that all of my students are part 61. They're working professionals. Flying is not their full-time gig. They're, they're working on an instrument rating just for fun or, or whatever, or just because they want to be a safer pilot. So like right now, I would say 90% of my students are like the nine to five, Monday through Friday working types. They all want me at the same time. So like right now, for example, I'm able to do this podcast with you guys because it's in the middle of a, of a weekday. Um, but I've got flying flight lessons tonight. Um, you know, so I'm usually flying in the evenings and the weekends because that's when my students are available. Right. Um, yeah. And also because of that, it's taking me longer to get my students to progress them through their training because, you know, um, like I've got one student in particular 
you know, he's been working on his, his, I mean, I've actually got a couple of them. They've been working on their IFR stuff for like a year and a half, you know, um, just because they, they fly maybe once a week, sometimes yeah. once every two weeks. And then, you know, whereas before my students, I could, shoot, I could fly with them every other day, easy. And I had one student recently who works from home. And so he was able to be more flexible with his schedule. I mean, we were flying two, three times a week and I banged out his instrument rating in four months, wow. you know? Wow. That's great. So th honestly, that, and the thing is, is that like more people want to fly with me and I want to fly with more people, but it just depends on what their schedule availability will allow. Yeah. yeah. So schedules is really, uh, yeah. Honestly, that's, yeah. Cause I feel like I've been able to break through and I have found, I mean, I'm always learning myself. I am not the end all be all. But um, I am a gold seal CFI. I've only, I, I have had one failure of, of a student on their first check ride. Um, and that person got reverse sensing on the VOR when they were doing a missed approach and um, got confused on it. And the DP busted this person. And so now, but that was a learning lesson for me. I need to focus more attention on normal sensing and reverse sensing. And, and so now I, I do that and I've, I haven't had students have an issue with it since, but every student, every check ride, every lesson is a learning opportunity for me as well. So I take in that knowledge and then I apply it to future lessons or to future students. And I feel like that's really what's made me a, a, um, a good instructor, but it's going to make me even better in the future. And for our listeners that don't uh, know what a gold seal CFI is, what can you tell us about that? Um, you have to have uh, so in order to qualify for it, basically what it boils down to is your, um, you've got a high pass rate of students on a first time check ride pass. So the, the qualifications for are, you have to be a CFI, you have to have either your, um, AGI, which is your advanced ground instructor and, or your IGI, which is your instrument ground instructor rating. I have both. Um, cause I wanted to cover all bases just, you know, just <laughs> in case. Yeah. Um, but you have to have at least 10 students. Um, check rides within the last 24 or I think it's 24 months and you have to have at least eight of those students you have to have an 80 percent pass rate basically so when right. I applied for my gold seal I had a 90 percent pass rate all right good for you that's awesome now, a common question I I hear and sometimes while we're on a flight deck we're on a long flight and the, the captain will look at me and you know they find out about the podcast because I tell them and uh, they say, oh, my son or daughter or, you know, my my nephew or niece are interested in getting into flying. What advice can you give them or, you know, what what direction should they go? And it's kind of a hard question to answer because every individual student is unique. They have their own set of circumstances. But one of the common questions is, should they go with one of these flight schools that has all G1000 or now the G3000, you know, know. or should they go steam gauges? Um, I know what my opinion is, and I know what Rob and Roger uh, feel about this. What do you think? I am six pack all the way. I so I think that you should learn with the basics first. And, you know, I've heard of these flight schools. They, they teach in the G1000s. You know what? Good on them. But you're also going to pay for it. And at the end of the day, 
you still, you need to learn how to fly. And I've had people that learned on the G1000s and then they try to get into a standard six pack and it's so hard for them. Like they know the stick and rudder aspect of it, but they get so <laughs> hung up on the avionics. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, I, uh, I mean, I get it, but at the same time, like, so I just this last fall put a Garmin 650 in the warrior, uh, up until that point, like I said before, Six a standard six pack, dual VR, DME, and an ADF. Okay. And no autopilot. That's all no you autopilot. need. That's all you no, need. Yeah. No autopilot. Yeah. Every I did all of my instrument training in that airplane. Everything was hand flown on a six pack. Um, yeah. I did my CFII training on that airplane. No autopilot, standard six pack. Nobody can track a VOR like I can. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I jokingly say that. I'm sure there are people that are very proficient at it, but you know, like, and, and then I put that 650 in there and that opened up a new world of opportunity because now I can do RNAV approaches. In fact, when I first got the airplane in, I'm pretty sure even on VFR days, I was like, I'd like the RNAV approach, please, just because I could legally mm-hmm. do it, you know? Um, but like, I... It opened up the opportunity from learning those RNAV approaches or being able to teach it. But I still take students back to the standard six pack. Like I, I really like when it like I'm flying in an arrow tonight that's got a GPS, mm-hmm. but you'll you know I'm going green needles in that airplane, you know, a good amount yeah. of time because I need you to know how to use it. What does green needles mean? What's the difference between it? How do you track a VOR? Let's do a VOR check. You know, you need those basics and you're not going to get that with a G1000. Right. 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 Yeah. And I'm glad to hear you say that because I believe that the stronger the foundation of your home, the more you can build upon it and the, the taller you can build it. The foundation is always in the most rudimentary principles of aviation they teach this from your first day as a private pilot all the way through a legacy airline wide body aircraft Mm -hmm. when things get rough and things get out or off the rails always bring it down to the lowest level of automation click 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 click, raw data (laughs) aviate Eyes yeah. out the window. Forget the navigate, yeah. communicate for now. Aviate. Aviate. And to this yeah. day, if you start reading accident reports, which I know is your thing. That's my thing. You, you, you see this time and again where the pilots were overloaded. We've heard of the, the, the magenta line. We've heard of mm-hmm. all of the complexities that it brings into the cockpit. Just on the last show, I was talking to Captain Elmore who's, you know, 20,000 hours plus of aviation, multi, uh, what, six aircraft carriers he was on in the Navy. Dave. Unbelievable guy. So uh, I asked him the same question. It's like, do you feel that all this technology that's bombarding us with apps and EFBs and tablets and, and glass cockpits, they, they do bring in a level of situational awareness. They do bring in a lot of information. Sometimes that information can be overwhelming and we have information overload. Do you think those distractions outweigh the hazards that they pose? I mean, absolutely. Sometimes you have, number one, you have to know how to use them. More importantly, you need to know how to use them when things go wrong. If you don't, you're going to get hyper-focused on the problem and you're going to forget to aviate. So like, you know, those, those electronic EFBs that you talked about, the, the automation and everything, 
they are great as a um, backup to your aviator skills. But at the end of the day, you still have to have those skills. Another pet peeve of mine, if I may uh, add to my soapbox, um, (laughs) is when people try to buy high-performance airplanes and then learn how to fly in them. Again, I'm like, bring it back to basics. Like yeah. I, I know people like these, there's flight schools out there that teaching people how to fly in a Cirrus. I'm like, really? You know, like what happened <laughs> to the one fifties? What happened to the one seventy twos? I mean, yeah. uh, admittedly, I, I learned how to fly in a one seventy two, but a one seventy two and a one fifty two are fairly comparable, you know, get yourself a basic Cherokee, you know, or a one seventy two something like a one eighty two. It's just going to take you longer to learn how to fly it because now you're adding in more complex systems. You know, so like you said, build that foundation first. You know, you've got to crawl before you can walk. You don't try to run before you can crawl. Absolutely. Yep. You know, very it's funny advice. you say. I'm sorry, Rob. Go ahead. No, I say very good advice. That's that's so true. Everything that you said. And you said you go and, and take every opportunity to fly those green needles. Um, we do that mainline as well. Uh, I yeah. go on a Porta Fallarta tomorrow. Uh, it's my third time there this month. And nice. the controllers, you know, there's a language barrier and they'll give you direct to a fix or they'll give you, do you have the airport or you're clear to visual? Porta Vallarta has an MSA around the VOR at 11,200 feet. Awesome. The runway elevation is 23 feet. So (laughs) uh, the first time I went down there, the the beginning of the month, the captain goes, hey, we could, you know, it's your leg. Do whatever you want. I was going from L.A. to Puerto Vallarta. He's like, they're going to clear you probably for the visual. But as you know, there's terrain. You've talked about it. You you, you briefed me. But why don't we just do the VOR DME2 runway 22? It's the FMS autopilot. All you have to do is monitor it all the way down to final approach fix, and then you can click it off and land it. And it's an arc. It's an actual DME arc. You you have to hit your altitude and speed restrictions, and you descend in the arc to final. And then, you know, you turn final. Once you turn final, you can can either let the autopilot take you down to MDA, or you can hand fly it. And the view of the mountains and the canyons and the valleys, I mean, I'm sitting there monitoring but i'm like looking around going this is awesome look over there yeah everything is awesome now i could have easily have just click click you know chop it drop it configure it and get it on the ground no problem i'm not a hot dogger i mean if i want a hot dog i'll go you know get a a flight in the pits with somebody who's you know qualified (laughs) take me up and and let's see uh how long i last but uh no when i'm at work or flying just for leisure that's it. I, I enjoy doing the things that we don't normally get to do. I have training coming up and I know Rob's in the same boat. It's like, Hey, I haven't done a, a GPS approach in a while. Do you mind if we request the GPS, even if it's visual? Sure. Yeah. And shoot the whole GPS approach. Keep current. Yep. That's great advice. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. So tell us about your aero club. <laughs> um, so the Aero Valley flying club was established in 2010. And, um, for a long time, I mean, it stayed right around 20 members. I think at one point they had two, three airplanes. When I joined, it had, uh, 1.5 airplanes and 20 members. I say that because one of the airplanes was 
consistently broken down. Um, just a lot of <laughs> maintenance issues and whatnot. That's of course, 0.5. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I was flying the one aircraft, the, the 172, the one that wasn't consistently broken down. And, uh, like I said, within three months, you know, um, of becoming the, um, social director, we grew to 40 members and now we needed more airplanes. Steve and I bought the warrior and then we brought in a 152 Sparrowhawk. Uh, one of our flying club members, um, bought that airplane and put it in. And then, um, they were closing the runway at Northwest regional airport, which is where we were based. We're called the Arrow Valley flying club because 52 Foxtrot uh, used to be named Arrow Valley. And then somewhere along the way, they changed the name to Northwest Regional. So it was really um, a shout out to those uh, early aviators that established the airport. Uh, it was a nod to them as to why that, you know, our club was called Arrow Valley. But after they closed the runway, we started moving airplanes up to Denton. And then we started keeping airplanes at Denton. And within a couple of years, we had all four airplanes up at Denton. We grew to a fifth airplane and then finally a sixth airplanes. So now just in the last four years, I've seen the club grow from 1.5 airplanes and 20 members to six airplanes and a hundred members. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, I had this vision for the club when I became president, I I just got elected for my fourth term as president. Okay. Thank you. And, um, you know, when I first got elected president or when I was go- running for it, people were asking me, well, what do you see for the club? And I thought, you know, six airplanes sounds nice. Three high wing, three low wing, one high performance of each. And so we've got a Cherokee six. That's our low wing high performance. We've got uh, the Warrior, Cherokee 180. And then we've got uh, 182, which is our high wing high performance. And then two 172s. They're slightly different models. Well, what's really great about our flying club as well is that um, there are different avionics across every single airplane. Mm-hmm. We've got a 530-430 in the 6. We've got a Garmin 355 in one of the 172s, a basic six-pack with an older GPS um, in the other 172. My airplane, the Warrior, has got a 650. We've got an Avidyne in the Cherokee 180 and then a uh, Garmin 430 in the 182. So similar, but different. And each airplane's a little bit different, just depending on the mission you're looking for. So you want to take the family on a long trip, take the Cherokee six, you know, or you want to load up with four, you know, an actual four place four adult, you know, airplane and go, go have lunch across the state somewhere. Take the 182. You're looking to go to Stephenville for barbecue, grab the 172 or one of the 172s. You know, it's a great hundred dollar hamburger airplane. It's just, um, our club is made up of some really, really, really great people. We've had very few problems with membership along the way. Every now and then we come across, you know, that trouble child. Um, the, only, the, the biggest issue we had, of course, as I'm sure everybody's heard, is we did have a, a member a couple months ago decided to take not only the Warrior, but one of our 172s up for some aerobatic flights. So we had to take care of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big so. no no, ladies and gentlemen. Normal category <laughs> aircraft. Yeah. You don't do acrobatics. Yeah, it's not even utility, I don't think. <laughs> no. Nope. No, you you know, <laughs> even in the utility category, the warrior is yeah. not approved for spins even. Spins, it's certainly right. not approved for uh aileron rolls and loops and stuff. So uh, um, but you know, and people I, I got a lot of, you know, a lot of support on 
social media and on our YouTube channel and stuff for it. There were some people, of course, that had their own opinions of either, well, Bob Hoover did it. Well, okay, this guy wasn't Bob Hoover. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> also, Bob time, Hoover was also a test pilot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This was a very low time, brand new private pilot. I'm just going to leave it at that. The other comments that I got was, well, um, you know, this is why I'll never lease back my airplane to a club or a flight school. Well, that's great. Good on you. But you don't know my financial situation. And the whole reason why I bought the airplane in the first place was to put it in the flying club. And it's a way for me to give back to the community while simultaneously being able to afford owning an aircraft. Um, Because I don't know if people know this, but flying is expensive. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, um, but it wasn't, if I just, for a split second after that happened, I thought about yoinking my airplane out of the club, but I stopped myself and I said, I'm not going to do that because we've got a hundred members who are great and fantastic and treat my airplane like it's their own. I'm not going to do a disservice to them because of one chowderhead. So well said uh, in in the four years that I've been a part of this club, this is the first and only time that anything like this has ever happened. Yeah, Yeah, I watched your video on YouTube and I've got to say, the passion that you had, the emotion that you shared with all of us when you found out and telling your story, I was sitting there, I I felt it. I felt every little bit of frustration. I felt the, the disappointment in that individual um and the compassion that you had to not push it even further than you did i think you handled yourself with dignity and the fact that you sat there and used it as a learning tool to get the word out to maybe another person who's doing a lease back or or maybe maybe that pilot that uh Mm -hmm. three four five states away that's renting an airplane and his buddy goes come on let's do a let's do a loop and they remember watching your video and they'll think now yeah you know when the the first day that it happened you know it's funny another comment that i got was wow she's so dramatic and you know this that i'm and the thing is you know what that's fine let me be dramatic then. Uh, that first couple of days that I found out was not good for anybody. I'll just tell you that. I was <laughs> so upset. Um, oh, yeah. uh, anybody I mean, would be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not typically a crier. And man, yeah. I cried because I was like, yeah. are you freaking kidding me? Like this, this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. um, especially in a time of furlough, I've got some life uncertainty things happening in my life right now. Like this airplane and this flying club is all I have left, you know, is kind of what yeah. my, my mindset was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I called Dan that evening, Dan Milliken, my co-host and producer. And I said, look, this is what happened. Um, but I'd like to make some lemonade out of it because you know, Dan and I are fascinated with um, the Air Safety Institute and the airplane crashes. And we had recently watched the Air Safety Institute video on the CFI out of Arlington. So also in the DFW area, he back in 2007, he was known for going up and doing these types of maneuvers in the flight school aircraft. And on one particular day, it was him. He took up his student and an observation student. They decided to go do some some of these same maneuvers while doing a cross country flight in a Piper Arrow, so another PA twenty eight, um, and the aircraft broke up in flight, and oh. that really hit home for me because yeah. you know we're talking 
it's a Piper. Now there are differences, obviously the Iros got retractable gear and it was a T-tail arrow, but nevertheless, we're talking about a normal category aircraft. And when I found out that this person was doing the same types of maneuvers that this um, CFI had done, and then it was, he not only lost his life, but the life of two innocent students just because he was Uh, hot dogging around. That really struck a chord with me. And so when I made that video, it was almost two weeks after finding out Uh, about it. Yeah. And so I had actually really calmed down at that point. (laughs) Um, It was, and to this day, like I joke about it. People make jokes with me about the warrior going inverted and stuff. You know what? That's fine. Those are harmless jokes. I'm not going to get all twisted up about it, but I, my message was for anybody out there that was thinking about doing these maneuvers. It really is not okay because you're looking at the destruction of people and property, and you don't even know who you could be affecting on the ground. You know, um, and it was one thing for this guy to go up and do this. He had a non-pilot passenger with him when he did this in the warrior. Um, and we're to, you know, it could have been that, yeah, okay. He may not have hurt himself or his passenger, but future passengers, I mean, other people fly that airplane. I just imagine what would have happened if we wouldn't have found out and he would have continued to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, beyond visual, yeah, something you, you damage the airplane beyond beyond a visual inspection, and you won't find out until the next, you know, turbulence flight, and you, the wing falls off. And exactly, right. I mean, and look at the look at the arrow at Embry Riddle in 2018. That airplane had obviously been overstressed. Some have speculated that the airplane was um, doing maneuvers that it should not have been doing outside of its normal category, and mm-hmm. a an innocent commercial check ride student as well as an innocent dpe got into that airplane for a normal commercial single check ride that day and they both lost their lives because some chatterhead before them decided that it was cool to go out and do you know um maneuvers mm. in this aircraft yeah. or at least that that's some of the speculation it's you know you just think about things like that and the guy that did this in my airplane just didn't have the foresight to think about it and that makes me really upset Uh, And so that's why I put the message out there that I did was this is not okay. And if you think it is, you need to reevaluate your life decisions, honestly. Yeah. Well, you also violated an FAR regulation. Yeah. In addition to it, you need to know about it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. It's the Bible. Well, (laughs) hey, and, and that's the crazy thing is, you know, I think everybody can agree here. Nobody wants to share. Not only that, uh, you know, nobody wants to share airspace with a guy that's going to be doing something like that, you know, and I don't want to be in in an airplane um, that, you know, we've all flown with with an individual like that. I mean, it's tough, but these are some of the conflicting personalities that you will come across from day one until the day you retire. If it's a two pilot operation, especially you're going to have these conflicting uh, confrontations. The question is what's the best way to handle it? And that comes from your own personal comfort zone. How you, know, you that's feel part like of the thing with, with younger pilots too, from a certificate standpoint, in, in this instance, it sounds like he was a newer pilot. And quite frankly, there is a lot you don't know as a younger pilot. Um, I'd like to think, I mean, I certainly don't know anything about it, but I'd like to think that it was 
not that it's an excuse, but ignorance. You you just don't know. You you know, I got my my brand new wet certificate and now I can go do all this stuff. And unfortunately, you're just ignorant to the, you know, what you had just brought up, Christy, is, you know, all the stuff that goes beyond that. You know, I, I he didn't see or he or she didn't see past what was what was coming next because they didn't know. And again, that's not an excuse, but that's part of, you know, yeah. us as as I don't know, senior aviators. Yeah, my attitude is there are plenty of airplanes out there to go do that kind of stuff in. If you really want to yeah. go find out, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's why mentoring is so important. It's so important. You know, Definitely. you think yeah. that, well, I go, I, you know, I did my time and I went through my struggles and I, you know, I've, I've been mentored and I've been making good decisions and it's not my responsibility to reach out to the community. It's not my, they, you know, if you're going to get in this, you should know this, but that is not right. That is not true. We're here because we stand on the shoulders of all the aviators that have helped us along our journeys. And we stand on the shoulders of the aviators that have helped write the, the rules and the regulations in blood. It's a exactly. very common theme. There's a reason for it. There's always the big picture. The running joke is the day you retire from an airline, you get called in a chief pilot's office and they give you the big picture. And it's like, why didn't you give it to me on my first day? Why do you have to wait till my last? But that's the way that's the way it works. So mm -hmm. making good sound choices, good decisions, good rationale, good pilotage. It is crucial in this industry. And if you don't have the maturity, don't do it. Go rent an airplane with an instructor so that somebody's in the cockpit that can override your bad decision making because Pretty much. it takes a lot of responsibility to be a command of an aircraft, whether that's a glider, a hand glider, or uh, you know, yeah. a, a wide body aircraft. So, and it's a tremendous amount of responsibility. And that responsibility grows with the knowledge and the time that you invest into this profession. So thank you for sharing that uh, story. Yeah, awesome. um, you know, I, I watched that the other day and I was just so impressed. And I, and I really felt bad for you and for the airplane. How much did that cost to get all those inspections done afterwards? I mean, that's really a factor that you're not mentioning because you're, you're very humble and, 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 and you're sincere and giving, yeah. but I'd be pissed of the expense that now I have to go through to ensure the aircraft is safe to do yeah. the inspections that it now requires. I, and I, and in your video, yeah. you did mention it well, it was coming up on a, uh, an annual or whatever it was inspection anyway, but it wasn't even that. So my annual inspection actually isn't even due until at the end of May, she turns into a pumpkin on May 31st, but the, um, we, we were going to be getting the wings bar inspection done. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's crazy because, um, we actually did the wings bar inspection. We just happened to do it on the same day that the FAA said, Hey, your airplane is going to be required to do this. Um, it costs a little over $7,000 in inspections. And because uh, we had we did nose to tail, we tore the airplane apart, wings, tail structure, everything. We wound up having to replace the bolts in the tail. We did it for good measure, um, just to make sure that there was no overstressing. Um, and then there's a light combing service bulletin for an overspeed condition on the engine. We had to do that, which part of that includes overhauling the magnetos. Um, and because I still have, um, gyros in my airplane, I'm on the waiting list to get the G fives installed later this year, but I still have gyros. 
And those were actually fairly new gyros, but they needed to be overhauled because gyros, you know, without a cage, without that stop in it, they're never meant to go upside down. So those needed to be recalibrated. I mean, that's the thing is that you people, when they want to do stupid stuff like this, they don't think about the implications of yeah, going to affect the airplane now or in the future or people in the future. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I wound up having to do just a crap ton of inspections and work on it to ensure that it was safe for not only myself and, and my, you know, my son, I take my young. Yeah, it's a huge liability. Yeah. yeah. But also for the other flying club members. Exactly. Absolutely. Christy, what would you say to a young girl or boy, for that matter, who wants to become a pilot at a young age and hears all the negative proclamations from people around them, especially at a young age as an adolescent, what do you say to them? Um, if it's something that you really want, just don't stop at it. Um, you know, go get that discovery flight. It, it's going to be hard. I, I wanted to fly. I mean... I was friends with uh, a guy I went to high school with who got his private, I think at the age of 17. And, um, you know, I always envied him to a degree, but at the same time, it was like, I I wasn't in a position, I grew up in a really poor family and there was no way I was going to be able to do that as a kid. But um, I never stopped dreaming, never stopped working. You know, there's a saying that I've heard and I love it. It's dreams only work when you do. And uh, that's kind of what I always, I took that to heart and I've always carried that with me. And when people ask me, well, how do you stay so motivated? Cause there are times that, you know, you're going to look at this and you're like, why am I doing this? Especially on days you get furloughed and things like that. And the answer is I don't stay motivated. I cultivate discipline. So that way, cause motive, when you think about it, motivation is very fleeting, right? It requires no work. It comes to you when you least expect it, but cultivating discipline gets you in good habits. It forces you to do something even when you don't want to do it. So on days, there were days that I didn't want to fly, but I was like, man, I need these hours. I need to fly. I need to instruct. I need X, Y, and Z. And when I was done at the end of the day, I always felt so much better than had I just you know, stayed home. Yeah. I, I learned that I think with running, uh, something mm-hmm. I got into I was after, say with workouts. Yeah, yeah. After I got to, to Sandpiper, um, I've told the story in one of the early episodes, how I got into running and, uh, and I had a captain tell me you'll never wake up and go about your day. And at the end of the day, you'll never say to yourself, I shouldn't have gone running today. Yeah, true. But you will say, man, I should have gotten out the door or you get to the layover hotel. And, you know, my routine was I got to the layover hotel. I would turn any technology on. I would immediately change into my workout gear. I'd tell the crew, I'll meet with you maybe in an hour or two. Uh, I'll text you and I'd go for a run. And I used to bid my layovers for the run and uh, for the training. And I felt better. It allowed me to have a beer and not feel guilty about it. <laughs> yeah. In aviation, you know, we talked about mentors and, and people and events that shape our decision making. What would you say has been the most significant factor in your pursuit for an aviation career? 
honestly, the sheer amount of people that have extended themselves to help me has been overwhelming over the last, you know, four years. There are so many people that have helped me along the way. I, I could spend probably 30 minutes just going through and listing off people. Um, people that just extended themselves. Hey, jump in this flight. Hey, you need to build some twin time. Come fly the twin with me. Um, Hey, you're having a hard time with your landings. Why don't you just come fly with me? I'll show you how I do it. You know, just stuff like that. And when I, I I mean, I was so fortunate to experience those things. I now am trying to give back, you know, that sentiment, that same sentiment to as many people as I can, you know, within reason, of course. Um, just, I mean, so many mentors uh, along the way and, and even my mentees that I now get to mentor, they teach me things along the way, which is really great. Yeah. Having an open mind in this whole process and realize that I am a lifelong student pilot. I may be an ATP, but that doesn't mean I do anything, you know? Yeah. Learning every day. The day you stop learning is yeah. the day you should hang it up because that's going to yeah, be exactly. complacent, right? Yep. Yeah. Which, which brings us to some of the biggest challenges that aviators have to contend with in their progression on their journey. You know, there's some easy ones we can pick right off the bat without even Early. having to get to know you, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, look around, look outside. Uh, there's a lot going on. But for you personally, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you have to overcome? Um, you know... I, uh, it's weird. Like people ask me how I feel about like women in aviation and getting more girls in aviation. And I'm certainly grateful to the women that came before me who paved way. I have been really, really fortunate to have not experienced, at least in this early stage of my career, I haven't experienced a lot of discrimination being a female, but I have experienced some. Um, I was denied a job um, as a contract pilot be, just because I'm a female, because the individual before had had poor experiences um, flying with other females. I mean, this person doesn't even know what my abilities are or my skill set. He just blankly said no. And so I was denied an opportunity to even prove to him that um, I'm a good pilot. Um, so uh, there is that. Um, other challenges, I mean, early on in my career, it was there was overcoming the, the nerves, you know, or even, even now, you know, getting in a new airframe. I, I learned some new airframes this last year, of course, with the, um, with the jet that I got my ATP on, as well as the, like the Learjet and the CJs and, and whatnot. Every time I step into a new airframe, there's a little bit of nervousness there. Like, okay, Chris, you know, don't, don't screw this up. Um, and it's not the flying ability of the airplane. It's like where everything is, you know, that the hardest part of flying an airplane for me now is the avionics. But, you know, during flight training, it was the maneuvers. It was accelerated stalls in a Piper Aztec. You know, those are a little unnerving when you first do them or power on stalls in a Cessna, you know, things like that. But I think the, the biggest thing that I, I learned through that was just keep pushing through. You know, it's not about, it's not about going outside of your comfort zone. It's expanding the zone itself so that now you're within, you're still within that zone. It's just, your zone is now bigger. Huh. Yeah. You know? Very and well just said. Not, 
not giving up, just continuing that pursuit. I mean, if I didn't do something every time I was nervous or scared to do it, I certainly wouldn't be in the position I am now. Um, So I was, you know, my best friend, Kevin, you know, he took me out once in the warrior and he's like, Oh, you know, he, he was talking about stalls and falling leaf stalls. And I was like, falling leaf stalls, that does not sound fun. And so we went out and he showed, I, I remember that first time we did falling leaf stalls. Oh my Lord. I was so nervous. I was hanging on to stuff and cause I, I didn't know what to expect. And the airplane's just oscillating and all over the place. And we're going down to like 2000 feet a minute, just almost straight down. Um, but then I, I was like, okay, I did not like that, but let's, let's go do it again. And so he kept taking me up and doing it over and over again. And now I demonstrate falling leaf stalls with my students. And in addition to that, um, I was in a jet last fall and um, the PIC wanted to take me out and just get me used to the airplane. It was a new airframe for me. He's like, you know, most people don't get to stall a jet. We're going to go out and we're going to do steep turns and stalls and emergency maneuvers in the jet. And I thought, okay. And so we went up and we, I actually got to stall a jet and it, it's not a normal, you know, stall like you would in a Cessna. It is a falling leaf stall mm-hmm. effectively. And so I got to do that and I was like, oh yeah, that was super easy because I'd been doing it, but that's because my, my comfort zone, the, the zone itself had been expanded. So I was now able to perform those maneuvers. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's a very well yeah. said statement to expand your comfort zone instead of pushing outside <laughs> of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I learned something new today. That's awesome. There you go. So, so far, I mean, I already know the answer to this one, but what's been your favorite aircraft that you've flown to date? The Wong Warrior. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) That airplane, look, for so many reasons, not just because she is mine, but the PA-28 in general is just a solid airplane. It's like the 172, you know, it's just a good solid airframe. But man, you throw tapered wings on that, on a Cherokee, and it just, just the maneuvers and the capabilities. She is so docile and forgiving when it comes to maneuvers and landings and, and everything. Um, to me, it's the perfect instrument trainer because, you know, in a 172, you sit up kind of high and you're overlooking the nose. And it's almost difficult to throw on foggles and keep everything covered up. But in a Piper, in the Warrior, you know, you're, you're sitting down lower and the instrument panel's higher. You get that different sight picture. So now when you put the foggles on, it really blocks out that view. It's much harder to cheat, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just such an amazing aircraft. And, you know, people have asked me, oh, like, what's your lotto airplane? And, and I always say, well, step one is pimp out the warrior. You know, she's, <laughs> she's getting a paint touch up. I'm going to do the buff and wax on her, get her the upgraded tires. And then maybe I'll get her, get her like an older sister or new, you know, bigger sister, like a Malibu or something, you know? Oh, nice. So you'd, you'd go like a, a Malibu or something. Just a little in the more, Piper family, the, probably. Yeah, a little more horsepower. Just a little. Maybe, nice. maybe if I win the lottery, depending on how big it is, uh, I might go Meridian. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, like get, nice. get a little bit of a single turbine PIC in there, you know? So you wouldn't go vintage? How much money have I won? Because, uh, because if 100, 100 I... 100 million. Ooh, okay. So yes, I would probably go like old school cub. Oh. Um, 
You know what I'm really interested in though? I am such a dork. I love <laughs> super, super old airplanes, like the old Jennies, you know, oh. like 1914 style airplanes mm-hmm. that like they didn't even oh, know what wow. flaps were. I would be <laughs> at Osh a couple of years ago. They were recreating um, an old cat, like a camel's, uh, the sop with, you know? Sop with, yeah. And I thought, you know what? That would be really, really cool. Like, I want to see this thing fly because I want to fly it. Um, mm-hmm. They were replicating it based off the old plans. But um, the stuff like that, like, I think that yeah. would be really interesting just to get into some of those early, early models. But like a 1940s Cub would be kind of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of, I think I want one from every decade, you know, just to round it out. <laughs> you have to have your own museum. I just yeah. might actually. So we're, if, <laughs> if I won a hundred million dollars, I, I did something really, really well. And I, I think I deserve an airplane from every, every decade. <laughs> well, you, I don't know if you That's can awesome. afford every decade, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, um, I always wanted, and I don't even, I think it's a, is it an Electra? The one that, uh. It's like a float plane. Howard Hughes used to fly it around. What was oh, that? Okay. Is that a Lockheed maybe? Yeah, I think so. It was a big mm-hmm. float plane and just a high yeah. wing with the, with the rotary engines. Oh, yeah. You know what? Like or, and I think too, like, I, I definitely want to get all the certificates and all the ratings. So seaplane doing it, uh, glider doing it. You know, if, I mean, if money's no object here, why not just throw rotary in too, just for good measure? I've always been yeah. a fixed wing girl, but if I've got money and money's no object, I think I could, I could splurge. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know about those Robinson thirty threes or whatever they are, man. That's a lot more. <laughs> I would get one of the. If money's no object, I'm getting like one of those bigger Bell helicopters. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. Oh yeah, so, like the Airwolf style. Love too. Oh my god, absolutely, yeah. dude. Full on. <laughs> Straight up, I'd paint it like Magnum PI, man. Dude, <laughs> full of red or whatever. Yeah, exactly. With a Hawaiian shirt and everything. I'm doing all my flight training in it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Right on. We've really gotten to know you here, and <laughs> I still can't really put my finger on what you would answer on this one. Okay. What's your biggest pet peeve in the cockpit? No. Biggest pet peeve? Um, okay. Uh, overstimulation of the rudder pedals is a big one when you start, when the airplane starts twerking and fishtailing. That's a big one for me. So I've got, uh, I've had to teach students before the smooth coordination of the rudder pedals mm-hmm. or when I'm doing like discovery flights or doing checkout flights with new club members and they're used to flying jets and not GA and they don't remember how to use the rudder pedals. That's always fun. <laughs> um, radio work is a big pet peeve of mine. I, I'll say what specifically, if you don't know how- specifically, um, like non-standard phraseology kind of stuff or I mean it depends on what it is okay here's a good one for you not being concise on the radios you know and obviously no offense to the airline guys uh but like I've heard some of the airline guys come on before and they rattle off a 30 second message and for me I'm thinking like okay here's a story for you so I'm flying a citation a couple of years ago and the captain and I, we're, we're literally, we're trying to go from Georgia to Denton and we got rerouted all the way up into Oklahoma. 
And because the storms and metering into the DFW airspace. And this poor Fort Worth Center controller is just putting people into holds one after another, trying to get people, you know, rerouted, doing whatever. This guy from a particular legacy carrier comes on and rattles off a 15 second check in <laughs> along with a request. And my captain and I just looked at each other like, wow. And the controller was so funny. He's like, well, thanks. It's not like I'm busy on the radio or anything. Tell you what, <laughs> slow to this airspeed and hold at this fix, you know, at one four thousand. And I mean, he literally just put the guy in a hold right away. It was so funny. Um, um, honestly, situational awareness on the radios. I, I would say that's probably my biggest pet peeve yeah. is. Yeah. Whether And it's hard to teach a student. So I've given a lot of grace, but I try to use it as a learning opportunity for my students. You know, don't call ground when you've just heard ground give an IFR clearance to somebody else. Wait until that airplane reads back their clearance and ground is done talking before you, you know, call ground, stuff like that. Or, yep. um, you know, students stepping on each other all the time because there's, they click over to the frequency and immediately start talking. They don't wait three seconds to figure out yeah. whether or not somebody's talking already. It's yeah. just stuff like that. I think that's my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. Yeah. I that's agree. a common thing going on right now. Right. Tony, yeah. with the air route traffic control system, a lot of controllers are working multiple frequencies yeah. and you know, you'll, you'll hear the controller say something to somebody and there's no response. And, you know, we know now that he's talking on multiple frequencies, Yep. but some guys will just come in, they'll flip the switch. And they, as soon as the switch is flipped there, you know, yeah. push the talk and you're like, dude, he's talking to 15 people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Wait your turn. I, I can't stand it. And it happens more often than not with super senior pilots yeah. at legacy carriers. I mean, I flip the switch on a frequency change. If I'm the pilot monitoring or however we do it uh, at, at legacy, when you're at cruise and the autopilot is on the pilot flying is flying, but they're also changing the frequency on the radio control panel and swapping it over. And the pilot monitoring, which in my case would be the captain. He doesn't have to lean forward from his recline position, which is standard. <laughs> He can just talk on the radio. I hit the switch. He looks down, verify I did it right. And then he'll talk. Now, I'd say 90% of them do the technique that I was taught at a very uh, young age, which is you never talk within 10 seconds of hitting that push to the swap button. So you hit the swap button and you wait Mm -hmm. and you make sure that you're not interrupting somebody's call. There's nothing that's that important unless you're dealing with an emergency that you have to talk within 10 seconds. So you wait and you wait and then you talk and then you know, you're not interrupting anyone. Um, Or if you heard a transmission, wait, maybe Mm -hmm. you're going to block somebody's response that could actually create quite a problem, especially if you don't know what's being said. Um, So yeah, most people don't realize most people don't realize if the controller needs to talk to you and you haven't said anything yet, he's going to call your call sign and be like, right. Hey, legacy one, two, three, are you here? Right. Oh, they yeah, have your yeah, script. Yeah, right. They know three, you're five, there. Yeah. In some exactly. airspaces, you don't even get the chance to check in 
Like, what is it like Atlanta center? Yeah, exactly. You switch frequencies and then you're waiting and then they'll be like, legacy one, two, three, uh, are you up? Or, you know, like sometimes they just, they'll just give you your clearance. Exactly. 2000. You're like, all right, we're doing that. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So, um, but yeah, I think honestly what it boils down to me is it's just consideration of other people. It's the way that I drive. It's the way that I fly. It's the way that I talk on the radio. Like yeah, it's, it's such a basic courtesy, like situational awareness for that though. Just, you know, if I, and sometimes I unintentionally step on people. Cause like you said, the t- controllers are on multiple yeah. frequencies. And so sometimes there'll be like citation, you know, standby. Um, and then you hear him talking, but that's not because I, I wasn't considerate. It's just, I didn't know. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, honestly, just basic human consideration. The golden rule. Thing treat exactly. others i mean you don't want to be stepped on no. so don't step on someone else i don't want to step on people yeah it's yeah, the little exactly. things yeah here's another one okay logbook paper or electronic both oh why both um i'm just that type of person i like to have oh, a backup cool. for my backup um i like to keep <laughs> my paper logbook because it's got all my endorsements um and honestly it's it's very sentimental for me as well it's got all my memories and stuff like that in it but it's not super practical in like okay i'm gonna come home tonight and log my three flights or whatever so i do keep a um an electronic logbook um mm-hmm. that i Literally after my flight, I go in, boop, boop, boop. It takes me 10 seconds to log a flight. And then um, I transpose them into my paper logbook at a later time. Yeah. And Rob? Yeah. Well, I used to be paper. Uh, and I used to get those little red, you know, uh, pocket log book. books I used to yeah. buy. Yeah, the pocket one. And, you know, after so many flights a day and, and getting, I just got, so far behind on that stuff and i think i had like 15 of those books and then i would normally transform them into my master log book my professor my professional one mm-hmm. and that got overwhelming so then i uh got the electronic one that they used to do at, at uh sandpiper mm-hmm. where it automatically take the saber stuff and throw it into your i don't know if they still do that but that was great and then print that off and I just kind of fold the thing up and put it in my logbook. And that was, uh, you know, the second logbook. And then, uh, I stopped doing it. Yeah. So I, I have nothing now. I just use the one that the company provides us electronically. Yeah. The and, union. uh, so, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the, uh, I, I started out with my student pilot logbook, my little blue one, the Cessna, the, the John and Martha King, uh, C- flight training center. CPC course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I started with that. I filled that up. And once I got my CFI, I, I bought one of the professional, I think it's a Jeppesen. The green paper. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've got. Yep. I'm on my Hold the corners. fourth one of those. <laughs> um, I too carry the pocket one and in the airplane, I'll fill out like the tail number and whatnot. Cause that's kind of hard to go back and, and find later. And I'll put in my, destinations flight hours and i'll total what i did for the day for each page is one day i'll write down the captain and the captain's employee number um so i've got a log and then about once a month or once every two months um i'll sit there on a flight and i'll bring my 
big logbook and I'll sit there with the tray table and I'll just kind of fill it out in the, in the middle of the conversation or whatever. Tray table Airbus guys. I was going to say Airbus you and guys. your fancy Airbus. <laughs> I don't know how people did it before that. Tray I mean, table. That thing's open. Uh, I'm jealous. Uh, unless I'm doing I'm takeoff jealous. or landing, that thing is open and I'm just, you know, I got all yeah. my notes and. I yeah. joke, but I would love to fly the Airbus someday. So yeah. Yeah. I can't even say I'd like anything. to too. Well, come along on a, jump, on a jump seat one day. Dude, as soon yeah. as I get my privileges back, I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. It will show you how we'll show you how real pilots do it though in the 737. Oh. So I like how you said real. <laughs> yeah. 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 You'll get rug burn from those trim wheels <laughs> on your knees. Yeah. Keep away from Watch that. Watch your knees. Yeah. <laughs> Start trimming. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> Clear trim. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. My, you know how many yeah. chiropractor visits I've gone to because of that jump seat on the seven three? I've got rivets permanently indented <laughs> oh, from falling asleep against that panel right there. No, oh, no yeah. thank you. Yeah. No, yeah. I I know. I get to stand up mid flight and stretch my legs every once in a while. Oh, I'm so jealous. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying, uh, we're starting you. a feud here. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for for letting us in on on some of your pet peeves, and, and we I think we all you know we share your sentiment. Um, I think radio communications is actually quite important, um, regardless if you're just starting out. I think uh, I took that course. Uh, say again. Thing. Yeah, it was like an online thing. Um, great. There's so many resources out there. I know AOPA has just a tremendous amount of resources on their webpage. Speaking of AOPA, recently in the hangar interviewed the CEO and president of AOPA. How did you guys manage to get him in the studio? Uh, we were very nice. We asked nicely. And uh, we are huge advocates of AOPA because AOPA is a huge advocate for GA uh, aviation so or general aviation. So um, they were more than happy to come and speak on our platform and uh, really just promote it because a lot of people, I mean, we get asked all the time, is AOPA worth it? And if you've ever tried to fly general aviation anywhere other than America, you would know that the answer is yes, absolutely yes. Yep. Yeah. And the insurance wow. services, if you're uh, renting, if you're a student pilot and you're renting aircraft at a club or you're renting aircraft at a flight school, you know, that a couple dollars a month or whatever it is for their renter's insurance, well worth it because deductibles are high. And if the owner of the aircraft, you know, deems you're the one at fault for the, uh, the cost of the repair, if you are unlucky enough to have a necessity for one, man, those services are phenomenal. Well, they've got legal services. They've got a med line that you can call and, and speak to somebody about medical. And I mean, it just, it, their services are so far reaching and they're yeah. available to, you know, all pilots. And so why not? Yeah. So many benefits that how can you not do it? Yeah. It's yeah. like less yeah. than a hundred bucks a year. So is AOP worth yeah. it? Absolutely. To keep I, us flying? Definitely. I've been a yeah. member since 1999, I believe, or something pretty close <laughs> to that. Um, and yeah, it's very well. It's kind of like having a union before yeah, you're at say. a mainline carrier. You have all the services yeah. that a union would normally provide once you're at yeah. a 121 Support operator. and all that. I'm part Information of the club. And support. I've got the hat. There, there you go. It. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap it up here today, a um, couple of final thoughts. If you can go back in time for just a moment and whisper in your younger self's ear, 
what would you tell yourself? Um, just never give up. Keep flying. Don't, don't stop. You know, somebody recently asked me if I could go back and change anything, would I? And I said, no, actually. Um, the only thing I might have done differently is I would have started flying in 2014. You know, I would have gotten in a couple of years earlier. But uh, because then maybe I, it would have prevented me from getting furloughed. But at the end of the day, I've also gained a lot from being furloughed as well. And now I get to say later on in my career that, yeah, I was furloughed. I mean, and the things that I learned from it and how I carried myself during that time. And who knows, maybe I'll get to be one of those, you know, older, you know, bitter airline pilots. Um, I joke about that. I, I would not. I will know now, though, for future generations, what it's like it, when furloughs are imminent, because it'll happen. This yeah. industry is very cyclical. And yeah. I'll be one to step up and say, hey, I'm willing to take a 10% pay cut to save my brother and sister pilots, if that's what it takes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. You know, I, uh, uh, there's a lot of learning from this experience that uh, I would not have gotten had I not been furloughed. It's, it's a really unique position to be in. And I don't think that the pilots out there that have never been furloughed, you can't truly understand or appreciate the position unless you've actually been in it. Yeah. So right. um, not that I'm glad that the furloughs happened, but if it was going to happen to anybody, you know, let it happen to me because I'm still in a position that I, I can take this time as an opportunity to continue giving back to my community. Yeah. Nice. Versus yeah, when I go well. back, I'm going to be on standby reserve for the rest of <laughs> in Chicago. Well, it's not going to last very long because, <laughs> you know, if you if you go onto any of these aviation websites, you see, oh, pilot shortage, pilot shortage. So those articles are starting to, you know, hit the uh, come up again print. Yeah. yeah. Here in the last couple of weeks and couple of days. Um, yeah. I really think this at the beginning of this pandemic, we were talking about how this wasn't going to last very long. Obviously, we were wrong. Um, but. I I do believe that we were correct in the fact that when this does come back, the floodgates will open and the demand will be so high. You're just going to be throwing darts yeah. on a chalkboard yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. One thing that's not going to stop is retirements. You know, that's, that's going to happen. Yeah. So and the demand is when you increase. have that, you're going to have people, you need people to fill the shoes. Even if the airline shrinks, you know, there's still people retiring. Yeah. You always need to fill the shoes. So, and you raised yeah. a good point as well as we, we had, uh, uh, the puppet Captain Roger Victor on the show uh, yeah. not too long ago, and you know we, we're we've been following him for quite some time. Uh, we we love Captain Roger Victor his his Armani uh, pilot suit. He doesn't do that uh, <laughs> outfitter stuff, and uh, he did post not too long ago something on Twitter that really stuck with me. And the reason it did is because the conversation was had with myself and some of the other pilots that I have had the privilege of flying with over here at the legacy carrier. And he said something to the effect of, if you think just because you went through a furlough after nine 11 and you came out, okay, that those that are going through furlough now are going to be just fine. There's something wrong. You're not wrong okay. Exactly. You know, you're not okay because yeah. no one should have to suffer and go through that with their career, cool. the stress, their family, their income. I mean, this is, it's tough. And the fact it, that you have such a good attitude towards it is very, uh, 
refreshing. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I've had my moments. I, I've I've had I have certainly had my moments of, wow, this really sucks. Um, you wind up you learn to embrace the suck because at the end of the day, if I just curled up in a ball and wallowed around in it. I mean, I would be so mentally unhealthy, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I've tried to, like I said, I've tried to use this as an opportunity. I, I try yeah. to stay a positive person anyway, but I, I mean, I didn't come out. I, I have not come out of the furloughs and out of 2020 unscathed. You know, I've got, um, there are some things we talked about offline that I'm kind of going through right now. And there, you know, I've got a little bit of life uncertainty going on, but um, I'm still, ch- I'm choosing to maintain a good attitude about it. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's okay. Like it's, it, it's right. devastating to look at it. I mean, we're, we're so contractually obligated to our airline. So we can't really go anywhere else. So our options are very limited. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um, I've been really fortunate I've been so fortunate. The decisions that I made in the past and the decisions that I continue to make have kept me afloat, fortunately, but not everybody's as lucky. I, I've seen stories of people that have had to um, break their contract, pay back their bonus and go somewhere else or move out of state or move out of country, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just so that they can support their families. Um, when we got furloughed, we lost everything. We lost our healthcare insurance, our paychecks, everything. You know, yeah. and that's, that's not easy. So for, I did see those comments about, oh, well, you getting furloughed, you know, you're just paying your dues. What a terrible thing to say. Absolutely. That's horrible. Yeah. You know, that's, it should be, you know, that, that message should be, hey, you know, brother or hey, sister, I know you're going through this. This, this sucks. Um, I went through it too. Let me tell you some of the things that I did to get through it. Exactly. Not yeah. you're paying your dues. What kind of message does that send? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Very well. You know, I know Tony and I have daughters and, you know, seeing, you know, successful females in the industry is, is awesome, you know, and, and no wonder you're, you're doing so well. And, you know, the, considering the situation that you explained, you know, you're just really, really, really amazing. It's funny. You, you own a warrior, <laughs> but you are a warrior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> well I said. That wow. irony, I was going to say, like people have asked about the long warrior and they've thought that I was the long warrior. So <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, that's, that's my airplane. I think yeah. you need to I'm find a, a way I'm to just an FO. use that. The long warrior. I yeah. Think, yeah. I think long warrior and long warrior too. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So final, final thought here and final question. Okay. Think back to a person from your life that has made the greatest impact to your success in aviation and in your career. Who would that person be? Why? And what do you want to say to them? Steve. Uh, I want to thank him for all the, all the times I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and drug him out to the hangar um, <laughs> so that I could fly for the patience that he had with me during my flight training. Um, and even where we're at today, you know, he still continues to be um, a big supporter of me in aviation. Um, he wants to see me be successful. Um, I have nothing but really, really good things to say uh, overall about my 
flight training experience with him. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So, awesome. yeah, I just want to say thank you to you, Christy, for, you know, all that you bring to the community and to aviation. You're an inspiration to countless young aviators out there and old alike. You know, as yeah. a gold seal CFI, that is quite the accomplishment and a testament to your instructor ability and the passion you have to make sure that your students have a successful outcome. The fact that you manage and are president of the Arrow Valley Flying Club, uh, all the time you put in there, I know that those 100 plus club members, you know, absolutely appreciate the work you do. You know, we loved watching you in the hangar episodes and taking off episodes that you do with Dan Milligan. Really good stuff. I mean, I know I'm going to go back. You have a lot of episodes. I was watching one <laughs> yeah. earlier this morning. You know, you just were yeah. flying around and talking on the radio. And man, all the ATC controllers over in Denton, they love you, man. Yeah. This is, it's, it's awesome yeah, to awesome. hear. They, you can hear the excitement in their voice with, with the communications they share with you. So, you know, congratulations, you know, and the community of Lantana, Texas. I mean, to start up and manage a nonprofit organization that gives back as much to the, not just the community, but the younger people in the community, all the parks and, and organizations and that you're involved with. It truly is an inspiration. And when earlier Roger, you know, <laughs> sat there and, and did a, uh, you know, throw his hat on the floor saying, damn, you know, <laughs> you make me feel like I'm a chump. You know, basically, know. You, know, <laughs> it, you really do. Um, and when I said, wow, I mean, I think that sums it up. Yeah. Thank you, know. you. So congratulations. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Is there anything else you would like to, to say or? Um, no, I mean, thank you guys so much for having me on the, for my first podcast. This was quite a delight. I think you guys set the bar pretty high, so... Oh, I, I'm thanks. and I'm happy to come on future episodes. Yeah, you know, I, I was absolutely right gonna say I, I would love the opportunity to spend time with you on air here and and talk about aviation. Something that clearly, you know, absolutely. all of us uh, are very passionate about. And I also want to take this opportunity to thank the frontline workers out there: the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course all the airline employees that show up every day to work to provide the essential and safe service that they do. We're finally kind of seeing TSA numbers every day that are over a million. This is great news. Um, yeah. Very grateful. And I'm really hoping that Christy, you get back on the line at Sandpiper as soon as possible. And we are here for you. You have anything that you just have a question about or something we can help with. We're there. Yeah. You know, and make you. sure you have your resume in off the street for American. Somebody like you would get picked up in a heartbeat. Make sure you put on there, uh, you know, been on the podcast for yeah. Squawk yeah. Ident too. Yeah. You got yep. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's on the resume. Well, if you're enjoying yeah. Squawk Ident and you really like what you hear, please make sure you follow the show and share it with a friend. Take a moment if you're on Apple Podcasts listening to this right now at the end of it send us a review. That really does help us out with the standings in the Apple podcast community and wherever you listen. Tell a friend and also we love to hear your feedback. 
check us out at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can leave us audio feedback, send us a quick email about show topics or anything you liked or didn't like about the show. We also have photos from the flight line over there. We have our Squawk Ident pilot shop where you can order t-shirts and hats and mugs and all kinds of cool stuff. And we have the guest book photo tab where some of the photos from our featured guests from the past have been posted up there. So thank you so much for all that you do and supporting the show. Finally, you can contribute to the show financially right there on the homepage and just give whatever you feel the value of the show is for you. And a lot of you out there are getting flying lessons, so we totally understand. If the only value you can give us is your feedback and a good review, that's fine by us. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can search for us under the Squawk Ident podcast. One final thank you to Christy for coming over onto the show today and sharing her wisdom and her journey with us. We do appreciate it. Thanks again. Welcome. And thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. Take care. Thank you.